we often pepper our sentences with extra little words called discourse markers. I mean, you know, well, like, and so. And they tend to irk native and non-native speakers alike. People learning English aren't sure how to use them, and some native English speakers feel like we shouldn't use them at all. But did you know that discourse markers have actually been around since the days of Old English, and that the heroic epic poem Beowulf even started off with one? Say what? Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, your friendly guide to the English language. Stick around, because after we talk about Beowulf's valley girl habits, we're going to talk about a big change in the way people view the words anxious and eager. Say what is right, but by what, H-W-A-T, I don't actually mean what in the modern English question sense. But instead, I mean it in the old English discourse marker sense, which, according to linguist Laurel Brinton, who literally wrote the book on discourse markers, quote, expresses speaker surprise and focuses attention, unquote. In other words, it essentially signals, listen up, I'm going to tell you something cool. This is why some hip, modern interpretations of Beowulf translate the first word in the poem, what, as simply, bro. Both back in Beowulf's time and today, discourse markers like to begin with and now help sentences flow together. Words like well and anyway give people subtle clues about your intentions. And discourse markers like you know and right help check in with and keep listeners engaged. These little additions might not seem absolutely necessary because, at first glance, they don't seem to convey much concrete information. But for something we often dismiss, they sure have a surprisingly long history of people using them to get their points across. Even more common in Old English than what was the discourse marker the, T-H-A, a precursor to our modern word then. It appears all the time in Old English texts from the 8th and 11th centuries, where it gave readers a heads-up that something is changing, an uptick in action, a new topic, or a switch to informal speech. In fact, it occurred so often in these old texts that some scholars say it couldn't possibly have carried much meaning beyond helping link sentences— the same way people now use the word so at the beginning of sentences to keep things moving along and connect one sentence to another. Other discourse markers you can find in this early period are widolicha, meaning certainly, and sothlicha, meaning truly. Later in the Middle English period, around 1100 to 1500, you start seeing discourse markers we still recognize today, such as ah, alas, and now. A popular Middle English word, anon, which originally carried the meaning of immediately, as in I'll do it anon, also began to be used as a discourse marker to help sequence action or events in stories. In other words, noting, here's what happens next, as in, and anon, he heard much noise in that chamber. By Shakespeare's time, known as the early modern period, around 1500 to 1700, people were using anon as a marker of attentiveness. Typically, someone with lower status used it when speaking to someone with higher status, as in, Anon, what is your will, mistress? 
which is a citation from the Elizabethan play Ralph Royster Doyster from 1556. Going back to Middle English for a second, the biggest discourse marker gift we get from this period is ye knowin, which people used to call up common or shared knowledge and was the precursor to our ever-so-popular modern-day discourse marker, ye know. Middle English also gave us the modern discourse marker, I mean, to show you want to clarify something, though it wasn't until the 17th century that people started using it to fix a misspeak, as in he wa- I mean he walked. But moving on to early modern English again, some discourse markers you might have seen in Shakespeare's works include prithee, short for I pray thee, and Mary, M-A-R-R-Y, shortened from by Mary, as in Jesus' mother. These had both become popular ways to claim the speaking floor and communicate some emotional intensity. We also find O, just O-H, appearing frequently during this period, though it mainly functioned as an exclamation and not yet as a discourse marker indicating some sort of shift in state, the way we use it sometimes today. For example, when I say, oh, I got a job, it suggests that this is a change in state from being jobless when we talked before. That's different from the way I say, oh, when you startle me. That's just an exclamation of surprise caused by your stealthiness. A few other discourse markers we think of as very new and modern today also got their start in the early modern era. For example, if you think Mark Zuckerberg was the one who introduced using write in the middle of sentences to check if people are keeping up, think again. This discourse marker showed up at the very end of Shakespeare's era. Likewise, actually and anyway start to appear as discourse markers in this era, but through a gradual process. First, they appeared in the middle of sentences, modifying verbs, as in, whomsoever a man shall anyway declare, a phrase from 1651. Then they began to appear at the beginning of sentences as sentence adverbs, or discourse markers that suggest you want to get back to the original topic, as in this sentence from Moby Dick, which was written in 1851. Anyway, There's something on his mind, as sure as there can be something on a deck when it cracks. The difference being that in the example from Moby Dick, anyway simply implies something and can be deleted without changing much of the meaning, because it's more of a subtle indicator that you're getting back to a point. In the example from 1651, however, whomsoever a man shall anyway declare, you can't delete anyway because it's part of the main meaning of the sentence. And that's what separates a discourse marker from a regular adverb, conjunction, or preposition. Finally, everyone's favorite modern discourse marker, like, was not entirely absent in English's early history. Although a form of like appears as the verb lychian very early on, around 1200, its prepositional use, in other words, life is like a box of chocolates, That use comes a bit later, toward the end of the Middle English period. For example, we find a lot to like in this line from a text written around 1530, Her body is like a swan. From there, using like for comparisons, people started also using like for approximations, as in, he's like a brother to me. And after that, it developed into a discourse marker, showing a looseness of meaning, as in, like, he's a brother to me. 
And despite our strong devotion to the idea that like is a valley girl innovation, the word has actually been used as this kind of discourse marker in both literary and casual documents going all the way back to the 1700s. So love them or hate them, discourse markers have been around a really, really long time in the history of English. What that tells us is that they must be doing something important for us as speakers, or we wouldn't keep creating new ones to make sure our listeners are clued in how to take what we tell them. Kind of just makes you want to say, like, wow, you know? That segment was written by Valerie Friedland, a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno and the author of Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. You can find her at ValerieFriedland.com. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and bestselling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. Anxious means worried or uneasy, but it's often been used somewhat interchangeably with the word eager to mean full of keen desire. But that flexibility seems to be changing. We got the word anxious directly from Latin, where it meant essentially the same thing, worried, disturbed, uneasy, and so on. Eager, on the other hand, comes directly from French, and an interesting usage quirk is that although French did have the full of keen desire meaning, it had many more negative meanings for the word. The Oxford English Dictionary mentions severe, fierce, savage, pungent, strenuous, and more. Another meaning was sour, and that's one of the roots of the Latin word for vinegar, which was essentially wine eager or wine sour. English also had many negative meanings for eager in the beginning, but they've mostly become obsolete, rare, or regional. Today in English, when you hear the word eager, you think of positive emotions. In the recent past, let's say the early 1900s, usage writers started making a big deal about not using anxious to mean eager. You were eager to take your apples to the market to sell if it was just for some extra money, but you would have been anxious about taking your apples to market if you absolutely had to get a certain amount of money for them to be able to survive the winter. You're eager for good things, but you're anxious for bad things or things that may make you worried. Anxious has been evolving, though. By 10 or 15 years ago, many people were using the words interchangeably. 
Three major dictionaries imply that it's okay to use anxious to mean eager, from Dictionary.com saying it's fully standard, to the American Heritage Dictionary saying in 2014 that resistance was waning. 57% of their usage panel said it was fine to use anxious to mean eager. And the most recent edition of Garner's Modern English Usage says using anxious to mean eager is ubiquitous. However, I have seen indications that resistance to using anxious to mean eager is actually growing again, which is very uncommon. When a word starts becoming accepted, it usually continues to become more accepted. But in this case, cultural factors are becoming stronger than linguistic factors. I recently did a poll on Facebook, and only 43% of the people who responded said it was okay to use anxious to describe an event someone was looking forward to, 14% fewer than the American Heritage Dictionary Usage Panel in 2014. That was surprising to me. But after reading the comments, sometimes, yes, it does pay to read the comments, it became more clear. We've become much more open about mental illness in the last 10 or so years, and the word anxious is used more frequently in a medical context, which means that although anxiety isn't stigmatized like it used to be, people do view it as something they'd rather not have. If you're going to the doctor and getting a prescription for being anxious, you're not going to associate that word with happy feelings or being full of keen desire. So although usage guides no longer say it's wrong to use anxious to mean eager, it's probably still a good idea to keep the words separate. You are eager to see the dessert tray at a fancy restaurant, but anxious about seeing the final bill. You're eager to get your new puppy, but anxious about how it might get along with your cat. Finally, I have a Familect story. Hi, Grandma Girl. This is Connie with the Familect. My daughter, when she was a toddler, would often overhear me calling the house a pigsty when it was a big mess. And we were very surprised one day when she opened the door to her own room, strewn with toys, and declared it was a pink stein. We thought this was really funny and kept it in our family lexicon. And the house is often declared a pink stein which makes it much more fun to clean up together. We also realized that pig and pink could be interchanged in a lot of situations to make them more fun. My daughter would request pink tails to go to school. And of course, we could all be a little pink-headed sometimes. Thank you for your podcast. And I look forward to hearing you every week. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Connie. With all the Barbie pink I've been seeing on social media, I'm sure a lot of people would love to adopt your family's word. If you want to share the story of your family act, a word your family and only your family uses, call the voicemail line at 833214-GIRL. And be sure to tell me the story behind your family act, because that's always the best part. Grammar Girl is a quick and dirty tips podcast. Thanks to our audio engineer, Nathan Sams, and our director of podcasts, Adam Cecil. Thanks also to our ad operations specialist, Morgan Christensen, our digital operations specialist, Holly Hutchings, and our marketing associate, Davina Tomlin, who recently completed their first aerial sling class. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. 